as we continue to look at the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ. Our scriptures this morning will be from Acts 9, 1 through 19, and 1 Corinthians 15, verses 8 and 9. If you've already read this, these passages as you go through the liturgy at home, just fast forward to the message. Uh, for those of you that hadn't, I will read it for you. First, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Now from 1 Corinthians 15, a chapter that is totally about the resurrection. We read in verses 8 and 9. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, 
because I persecuted the church of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow before you once more on this Lord's Day separated, once more separated geographically, but together in spirit, worshiping together in spirit. Our Father, we pray that all of us will know your presence where we are this morning. That we will understand that we are worshiping with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we pray for each other as priests for each other. We're a congregation of priests. Father, we pray for Tyler Kenyon's grandmother, for Juanita Burge. Our Father, we simply pray that you would give her strength physically, but more importantly, give her strength spiritually. May she know your presence. May she look forward to what you have prepared for her Our Father, we pray for Billy Griggs this morning. We thank you for his testimony among us. Pray that you would sustain him physically and, Father, continue to bless him spiritually. Our Father, we pray for John Sullivan's dad this morning, for his father, that you would bring relief for Tony Hunt that these antibiotics would continue to eradicate the infection in his knee. We thank you for the relief that has come to Peggy Bauer. We pray that that would continue. Our Father, we pray for Charlie Dawkins' father, that you would bring healing for Grady McDonald, that you would give him strength to continue day after day, week after week, to strengthen him. Bless Claire Reddit and Dr. Lynch, and pray that you would improve their eyesight. Oh, Father, restore their sight. Bless Amanda Vanderpool's mother. We pray that you would bring healing. Now, Father, as we open your word, we pray that we would hear, wherever we are this morning, that we would hear your voice in our hearts. John Sartell cannot preach so that we would be changed from the inside out or continue to be changed from the inside out. That we've heard your voice and we know your voice. And in hearing that voice, we have been changed by the power of your Holy Spirit through your word. So we pray that once again, this day, you would change us, Father, Maybe some of us for the first time. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. The penultimate appearance of Christ. Penultimate. What does that word mean? It comes from the Latin word penultimus. That word is a combination of two Latin words, pan, which means almost, and ultimus, which means the last. 
So penultimate means last or next to the last. Our focus the last five weeks has been on the post-resurrection appearances of Christ. So what was the penultimate appearance of Christ? What was the next to the last time Jesus appeared in the New Testament? We think of post-resurrection appearances as being those appearances which took place between the resurrection and the ascension. But there are two more appearances of Jesus recorded in the New Testament that took place after the ascension. The last appearance recorded in the New Testament is when Jesus appeared to John on the island of Patmos. That's where we get the book of Revelation. So when was the next to the last appearance of Christ? We read it this morning in Acts 9 when Jesus appeared to Saul on his way to Damascus. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul recorded the appearance of Jesus. That chapter is all about the resurrection. And in the first few verses, he just makes a list of all the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. And he comes to verse 8 and he says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Now Paul, we think, he got that wrong. It wasn't last of all. The last was John on the island of Patmos. But when Paul wrote it, Patmos had not had not happened. Uh, Jesus had not visited, uh, appeared to John on the island of Patmos yet. So, but by the time that happened, it became the penultimate appearance of Christ. His appearance to Saul on the way to Damascus. This morning, I hope that you will conclude, that you'll come to the conclusion that I have, that of all the appearances of Jesus in the post-resurrection, in all the post-resurrection appearances, this appearance to Saul was the most unusual and shocking of all. Let's begin by looking at this passage and seeing that this appearance brought about what is otherwise an inexplicable transformation. In our text from Corinthians, Paul wrote, I am unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. In our text from Acts 9, why was Paul traveling to Damascus. He tells us there in verses 1 and 2, but Saul, breathing threats, still bringing breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogue at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This man was bent on eradicating Christianity, eradicating the followers of Christ. Saul had been 
the one behind the execution of Stephen. Remember Stephen, the first Christian martyr after Pentecost? Saul had been behind. He was the one that engineered Stephen's death. Every Christian in Jerusalem, every Christian in Israel knew of Saul of Tarsus. He was infamous. He was the bloodthirsty persecutor of the followers of Jesus. So question, how does one go from being a hater of Jesus to three days later being a lover of Jesus? How does one go from being a murderer of the followers of Jesus to three days later being a follower of Jesus himself and loving the followers of Jesus? In a normal situation, we would say, that's just an impossible transformation. It's inexplicable. It's unexplainable. If you're a believer, if you're a skeptic, you are faced with the same dilemma in Saul's conversion that you faced with the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus did not come out of that grave, how do you explain what the disciples saw and the transformation that took place in them? At the time of the crucifixion, they ran. They deserted. Not only that, not one was expecting him to rise. They thought it was over. It was done. He couldn't have been the Messiah. He wasn't the Messiah they expected. And suddenly, they're transformed into, into men with backbone, men who would preach Jesus in Jerusalem in the very city where he was crucified. They were transformed by the resurrection. Just so, if Saul did not see Jesus, then what did bring about this sudden cataclysmic change in his life? Now, the change itself is undeniable. Just as with the resurrection of Jesus, several secular explanations have been made concerning the 180-degree turn made in the life of Saul. However, as with the secular explanations of the resurrection, the secular explanations concerning Saul really take more faith than the explanation that Paul offers himself. In the mid-18th century, Two men, two friends, went to Oxford together. One's name was Lord George Littleton. The other was Gilbert West. In their studies, they wanted to try to disestablish Christianity. They wanted to disprove Christianity. They weren't Christians. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They chose two events that had to be addressed if they were to be successful. They had to disprove the resurrection of Jesus. They had to disprove the conversion of Saul. 
both were huge pillars in the faith. West said, Gilbert West said, that he would write about the resurrection of Jesus and disprove it. Littleton said he would write about the conversion of Saul and he would disprove it. He would give a secular answer. They corresponded back and forth. They talked as they wrote. And slowly there came a change. When Gilbert West published his book on the resurrection, it was a book proving the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Littleton finished his book, he did not prove, disprove the conversion of Saul. Rather, it proved that he had indeed seen the risen Jesus. Both of these men had been converted. Do you see it? They said something had to happen here. They looked at this change in Saul, and it was so gigantic. It was inexplicable. There had to be an explanation, and they couldn't explain it, apart from the appearance of Jesus Christ. So this appearance brought about what is otherwise an inexplicable transformation. Secondly, this appearance presents disturbing theological formation. Consider, Saul, as we've seen, was the tip of the spear of persecution against Jesus and his followers. He was not a follower in this. He was the tip of the spear. He was leading the effort to eradicate Christianity in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Galilee. And then in the passage in Acts 9, he takes the fight outside of Israel to Damascus. Damascus is in Syria. There was a large Jewish community there. He took letters from the high priest introducing him to that synagogue so that he could arrest any followers of Jesus in the synagogue at Damascus and bring them back in chains and prosecute them in Jerusalem. Saul was so rabid in his hatred he was taking his, his battle, his fight, outside of Israel. What, what did Jesus say to Saul when he laid in the dust on that Damascus road? You know, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He was persecuting Jesus just as surely as those who nailed him to the cross. Do you understand that if this man had been at Golgotha, he would have driven those nails with glee into the hands of Jesus. So how would you expect heaven to respond? You might expect a wrathful lightning bolt to put an end to him. You might expect Jesus to visit Saul with the worst form of leprosy. But who expects Jesus to love Saul and to remake him into his ambassador? What kind of God does that? This appearance presents disturbing theological information. Put this in perspective. 
Saul was not the only was not only present at the stoning of Stephen. He instigated the whole affair. It, it began back at the synagogue that he attended in Jerusalem. It was a synagogue of freedmen. You will read in Acts chapter six that it was a synagogue for the Jews uh, that were in Jerusalem, either visiting or had come there to live, Jews from Cilicia. That's where Stephen was speaking. Stephen was a, a great debater. He was a great preacher, and he was preaching and debating there and having a tremendous effect. So there was a history between these two men. Now let's pretend that you are Stephen's son. We don't know that Stephen had a son, but let's say he is. And let's say you're his son. A month or so after Saul executed Stephen, your dad, you hear that Jesus confronted Saul in Damascus and that Saul is now a follower of Jesus. Do you want your Messiah, do you want your Savior to save the man who killed your dad? Folks, this appearance presents disturbing theological information, and that information has difficult implications for us as his followers. That's exactly what Ananias faced that day in Damascus when Jesus told him to go heal Saul. What did Ananias reply? We read it this morning. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. What was Ananias saying? Ananias was saying, Jesus, what's going on here? Do you know who this man is? Do you, Jesus, do you know what he's done? But this is the God that we see all through Scripture. Remember when God called Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh? It was a foreign city north of Israel. Ninevites had caused great misery for centuries in Israel. And here God was saying to Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach. Now, it was to be a message of judgment, but Jonah immediately goes in the opposite direction. He goes down to Joppa, purchases passage on a ship. Why? He hated the Ninevites. He did not want God to save the Ninevites. He wanted God to destroy the Ninevites. After the great fish ordeal, Jonah relented, and he went to Nineveh, and he preached the judgment of God. To everyone's surprise, the Ninevites, even the king of Nineveh, repented 
and God had mercy. What was Jonah's response? He went outside the city, sat down on a hill, and pouted. He sulked. He was mad at God. What did he say to God? In Jonah 4, 2 and 3, we read, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew you were a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. God was saving his enemies, the enemies of God, and Jonah didn't like it. Stephen's family, that might have, if you were in Stephen's family, if you were Stephen's son, you might have prayed that prayer. This appearance brought about what is otherwise an inexplicable transformation. This appearance presents disturbing theological God has mercy on his enemies and he saves them. And it has great implications because we don't know who will come in the doors of the church where we are. And we may not like that. We don't know who Jesus will bring, do we? Thirdly, this appearance brought about a humbling self-identification. Now, in the past, Paul had been a proud man. He was arrogant. He was arrogant about his faith. He had been a proud Pharisee, extremely religious, pious. But what did he say after he became a Christian? Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Because I persecuted the church of God. That doesn't sound like the proud Pharisee of the past. You see, when Jesus appears in Paul's life or any of our lives, it's humbling. We're all sinners. That's where the gospel starts. Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, he's writing to the Ephesian Christians. And here are Jews sitting, living in Ephesus. They are in that congregation. There are Gentile sects in that congregation. Once had been hostile to each other. And listen to what Paul wrote. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked. This is in chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked. So he's talking about before they were Christians. You were once dead in your sins. You were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, following Satan, and the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom, he's talking about people outside the church, the godless people, among whom we all once lived. All of us, Jews and Gentiles, all of us. You see, we have a tendency to look at Paul and see that he was far different from us before his conversion. That, that he, he did all these evil things, all these bad things. Question. How does heaven look at us? 
Do you, do you think that, that God looks at me and says, John, before you were converted, you were a lot better than Saul was before his conversion. Do you think he says that to me? I, no, I know he doesn't. Do I think I was more deserving to be saved than Saul? I read the life of Saul. No, he was not deserving to be saved, but neither was I. That is Scripture. That's what Scripture teaches. Francis Schaeffer. I learned so much from him. In my mind, he was Christianity's great prophet to the Western world during the last half of the 20th century. He said that he became appalled at himself when he, when he faced Christ, when he faced the God of Scripture and realized that he, Francis Schaeffer, was more like Hitler or Stalin than he was like God, than he was like Christ. Folks, there are not degrees of conversion. There's only one conversion, only one the power of the Holy Spirit to change the sinful heart of man. Whether it is through the Holy Spirit changing our lives as we read the Bible as unregenerate, living, debauched lives, or whether it is through the Holy Spirit changing our hearts as our parents read the Bible to us when we were six years old, it makes no difference. The heart of that the bought sinner can only be saved through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, through the power of God, through the power of Jesus Christ. That six-year-old, hearing Scripture read by his parents, his heart still must be changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, just like the debauched sinner. In salvation, when we encounter this Christ, like Paul encountered on the road to Damascus, we must always be humbled. John Newton, the minister who wrote Amazing Grace, you know the story. He once sailed the seas as a slave trader before he was converted. He lived a debauched life. How did he begin when he composed that great hymn, when he composed Amazing Grace, how did he begin? This was his personal testimony. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. When I was younger, I did not like using that word about myself. That was John Newton's testimony. I didn't think it was my testimony. Uh, I would read prayers where we would pray that God would save a wretch like me. I, I didn't like those prayers. I'm not alone. There was a time in Saul's life when he was quite religious, when he was a Pharisee, when he did not think of himself as a wretch either. 
But when he met Jesus, he thought of himself as an utmost sinner. So today, to close our service, I put two hymns in our liturgy, our worship service today, two hymns, that when we sing those two hymns, we confess that we are indeed wretches. We sung one. We sang Amazing Grace. Now we will sing the other. How deep the Father's love for us. We need to sing that hymn as Christians. Remembering indeed we've met Christ. Remembering that we were wretches indeed. And sometimes we still are. Maybe you've never seen yourself that way. Maybe you have never really come face to face with Jesus. This morning, sing this hymn. Sing it for the first time. And confess who you are to the Savior. He'll change your life change your attitude. He turned Saul's life upside down. He'll do that for you. We're going to sing this hymn now, but before we do, I'm going to say the benediction. And the benediction is a declaration of God's grace, of God's goodness to us. It's not a prayer. It's a declaration from Scripture. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be inside of us and go with us and abide with us. And all of God's people said,